in last week's class we can especially focused on this one particular verse in narayani suggested and recommended us this practice which was yoga is not for him who eats too much and fasts too much or sleeps too much or sleeps too little i hope somewhere during the week you've been able to tune into that found the places in your life where there's a tendency towards extremes and even in that extreme because we did talk about sometimes we do want to go have to go in one direction almost to counter the past that we've already been putting in the other direction always remembering where you want to eventually end up in that state of perfect um unity in fact of both those extremes and that is yoga and this is what this chapter is about chapter 6 is titled dhyana yoga the union through that meditation and we ended our last class um i believe on uh, the 22nd shloka which was where krishna was talking about what that state of yoga is and he talks about that state which once attained is considered the treasure beyond all other treasures in that state alone does the yogi become immune to grief even in the face of the greatest tragedy and so he's really asking us to come to that state he's not talking about this state from some sort of a to cosmic uh, a reality not yet of course there is once we are in that state there's so much greater but he's really trying to relate it to the human condition right now and the human condition is of uh, has two intentions behind every action behind every thought behind everything we do in the world and this is how our guru put it and these two intentions are wanting to find happiness wanting to increase the amount of happiness that we want that we have and wanting to avoid suffering and pain and so everything we do can be boiled down to these two hopes and desires can i increase the amount of happiness and joy that i'm experiencing or <laughs> if that's not going to be possible can i decrease and avoid as much as possible any pain and suffering and so krishna is trying to help us see it from that perspective as well it's not just that you will feel and find that bliss it is also that in the face of the greatest tragedies even grief will become unknown to you you'll become immune to it and then he finally says that state is known as yoga the condition in which one becomes immune to any pain again kind of stressing it he just said it and he says it once more the practice of yoga should be should therefore be followed resolutely with undaunted feeling now this is what he's trying to establish for most of us even those of us quite steadily quite committedly walking the spiritual path even for us it's like you know it's a chore our our practices our sadhanas can always be um many of us might you know if we don't keep putting out enough will power easily slip into moments where we just don't want to practice these things you know it's like we're looking always what can i do other than oh, i'll do japa i'll do chanting i'll do this but 
I won't sit for meditation. Or I won't do my energization exercise. There are always certain practices that are hard. And so Krishna is, you know, it, there's always the carrot and the stick reality. And the carrot for many of us is bliss. You know, it's like a bliss. But because that bliss is unknown to us, it's, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not really sure what this bliss is. I'm not really feeling it every time I meditate. So therefore, it doesn't always provide the impetus to say, we must resolutely you know, practice this because it's that bliss, it's that bliss. So Krishna is kind of turning the tables over and picking it up from an experience we do have quite often, you know, almost daily, which is the experience of pain, of suffering, of tragedy. And he says, ah, okay, if you're not ready or if you're not able to pick up pick it up from the perspective of bliss let's at least pick it up from the perspective of avoiding these things that might stir in us a little bit more to say okay yeah Motivation. that's true yeah i do want to avoid that pain i do want to avoid all this suffering so maybe that's the way so it's fun the way these masters will constantly they're just trying in so many different ways to help us to inspire us to motivate us to keep at these things. The 24th shloka. Relinquishing without exception. And Swamiji has um, highlighted that without exception. Every self-willed longing. Restraining mentally all sensory involvement in the world. Patiently calming the intuitive intelligence and absorbed in the self, the yogi, relinquishing all other thoughts, gradually attains perfect peace. Relinquishing without exception every self-willed longing. That's a tough one. The other day Narayani and I were meeting with one of our devotees here having dinner. And she was talking about how for so many people, surrender is such a hard step. And this is what Krishna is talking about here. I mean, we may think of surrender as this some sort of, you know, overtly outward act of Bhai Bhagwan, Tere Haat Mein Mein you know. And so people feel like, I, I can't do that. That surrender doesn't come to me where I just kind of fall at the feet and say, here, take it. For some people, surrendering is... Sen gives the idea of defeat you know it's like i surrender you know the armies have taken over i can't do anything so i surrender of course this isn't that kind but um that memory remains and so surrender becomes hard however this is where krishna is asking us in our meditation of course this entire chapter is what's going on when we're meditating primarily but also outwardly in our meditation, it is absolutely necessary to relinquish without exception every self-willed longing. Every thought, every feeling that comes up needs to be surrendered. We'll talk about where it is being surrendered, which is also important. You have to restrain mentally all sensory involvement in the world. Sometimes during my meditations, just to make them more interesting or not to get into the monotony of meditation, I'll focus on one particular sense and I'll work on seeing how can I, you know, how 
much interiorization and withdrawal of that sense perception can I achieve? So it could be being perfectly still physically. You know, I'm not, I'm not giving, I'm not paying that much attention to my techniques yet, but I'm really focusing on how still can I be every little until I'm no longer feeling the ground beneath me. I'm no longer feeling, excuse me, the cushion that I sit on. And that's one sense. Sometimes it'll be through the hearing, you know, every sound that's around me first, try to perceive all those sounds first, get the senses to be completely in my, under my direction, which is listen to every sound, the honk, the this, the AC, the fan, the clinking of some, you know, <laughs> utensils in the neighbor's apartment, whatever it is. And then one by one trying to withdraw. And that's again, one of those things doesn't mean you have to do it this way. This is just one of those kind of odd moments where it's fun to try them. But these two realities are going to have to exist in your meditation. One is the surrendering, the relinquishing of these without exception of every self-willed idea, longing, and then restraining mentally all sensory involvement. Why? Because then you come to the patient calming of the intuitive intelligence. Now, what is intuitive intelligence? Intuitive intelligence, Paramahansa Yogananda explains, is when our feeling, our chitta is completely still and calm and the intellect, our reason is also still and calm. He says it is the perfect balance of these two centers, the center of reason and the center of feeling of chitta. And however, and this is why these two first aspects come in, the self-willed longing, longing involves both thought and feeling, an idea and the uh, kind of concurrent emotional um, energy behind that idea, why you want this, what will it bring to you, whether you consider it good or bad, both in terms of wanting to push something away or wanting to hold something close. And so that has to come to a point, only then does the intuitive intelligence take over, which is that divine knowing in every act, in every uh, intention, in every thought, in every project, in every relationship. But we won't get there until to a certain degree we've learned how to still these two kind of restless, agitated aspects of ourselves, our feelings and of course our thoughts together creating the longing that Krishna talks about. I love the word patiently calming which also suggests that you have to actually sit long enough in meditation to get to that. Patience implies length. In the last line of the same um, stanza, he also says, gradually one attains perfect peace. So this is the other part of our meditations is they have to be long enough. Um, we can't be... When we start the journey, Narayani and I, in every class that we give, it's okay. Five minutes, just do five minutes, just do seven minutes, just do ten minutes. It's just like, do something. And people immediately start feeling the benefits, even of those very, very short meditations. And even in there, guidance comes, intuition comes, but not in ways 
where your entire life becomes intuitive, where Krishna is speaking to you moment by moment, where in fact the entire Gita is being lived by Krishna's words because he's the charioteer telling us where to go, when to go, what battle to engage in, what battle not to engage in, which is what the entire Mahabharata is about, knowing what to do and when to do it. Because we have a lot of things we have to deal with. We have a lot of karmas we have to deal with. But which karma needs to be dealt with first? Which karma we have to hold off? What particular weapon is needed for this? What particular weapon need is for that? That's the guidance that we really need. And it's not a guidance where you have to kind of sit and wait for it and long for it and ask for it. And now it's come and now you get to do it. It becomes where that's all there is. But to get to that point, we need to be developing this process through long meditation. So if you are, you know, you're a meditator, you're getting to a point where you're getting your 15, 20 minutes, even half an hour, don't stop there. If this is your goal, make sure you're pushing always to at least an hour, an hour and a half. Paramans Yogananda recommended that, um, at least as especially as devotees on the path of Kriya Yoga, that we do meditate a minimum of three hours a day. His recommendation being an hour and a half in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening. So try and see if you can kind of get to that point. 26th, each time, and this is now where Krishna explains how does one relinquish those self-willed longings. Each time the fickle, wavering mind wanders from its course, let him withdraw it and redirect it to the task of bringing it under control. Remember in, a, in previous stanzas, Krishna talked about practice meditation based on the techniques given to you by your guru. He's not here trying to give us a particular technique. He's giving us the principles behind meditation so that no matter what technique you practice, you're aware that it does and it should encompass these principles. It needs to encompass deep concentration. It needs to encompass a certain posture. It needs to encompass stillness. And also it needs to encompass complete control over the mind. But control over the mind, and this is where people have trouble with surrender, is this idea that somehow I have to push the thoughts and I have to stop them from coming. But Krishna here says, and he says it so beautifully, each time the fickle, wavering mind wanders. He's already calling our minds fickle and wavering because that's what the minds are. They are fickle and wavering. The idea here is not that we hold the mind and stop it. Controlling the mind doesn't mean like okay, every thought is just kind of being pushing the thoughts out. It is when the thought does come, the idea is that we don't follow and give in to that thought. But each time a thought comes, rather than giving it energy, we come back to whatever practice that our Guru has given to us. And that is the relinquishing of self-willed longing. Because every thought that comes to us is self-willed longing. It's based on our habits, on our subconscious mind, based on our desires, our hopes, our dreams. And sometimes and often in our meditation, Wonderful thoughts come, you know, ideas come, clarity comes, uh, projects and you get like, oh wow, this is how I should do it. And naturally they get, you know, it just magnetically draws us into it and starts, it's like, I don't want to lose this creative process that has suddenly come to me. But 
you cannot give in to that that's how the ego which is super smart it knows it knows which what to dangle before us that you know we'll just kind of uh, get all excited about it and give in to it and this is what krishna is talking about the surrender he talks about is not just you won't learn how to surrender outwardly you'll never when you come in a moment of crisis that that surrender that comes from there in fact is defeatist is bhai mujhse to ho nahi raha bhagwan ab tu hi kar and uh, you know i mean it's nice it's sweet it's at least recognizing something but that's not what god's looking for he's not kind of like now that i have beaten you to pulp into a corner now finally you say i have no other option so therefore might as well let me you know give god a chance that's not the kind of surrender that he's talking about right so this surrender has to be practiced and first practiced in meditation why because meditation is a controlled environment just like experiments are done by scientists in controlled environments before they can learn how to apply those experiments to daily lives if you read some of these theoretical experiments that scientists do you'll say i mean why are they doing this it has no application whatsoever but in fact everything that we have now use and become that science has given us comes from those theoretical experiments similarly meditation is that moment for us where at least for that time being we're as less distracted as we can be as still as we can be we're not getting engaged in too many things our mind is not all over the place our desires aren't being fueled by every little thing that we're seeing and experiencing so if in that moment you're able to come back again and again again and again to the technique to the task at hand to your meditation practice that's how you will then learn when the moment comes where your natural inclination is to do this or you say no i'm going to give this to god instead i'm going to give this to god instead i'm going to come back to god instead that's surrender and that has to be practiced and that has to be experienced no matter how wonderful a thought comes to you during meditation not during meditation should you follow it let your meditation end and after your meditation has ended if you want to then in that stillness of okay my meditation's over i've sat for a good 45 odd minutes whatever it is now okay let me come back to that thought and in fact when that thought does come during meditation you can even say i'll come back to you in just you know half an hour or so but for now back here back here and no matter how many times you're going to understand if you have to do it a hundred times during your meditation just coming back to your breath coming back to the technique that itself is a successful meditation the yogi who has completely calmed his mind whose passions which is the raja yog the rajoguna sorry are at rest and who is freed from every impurity truly attains oneness with spirit and supreme blessedness not much else to explain said it beautifully the yogi freed from imperfection ceaselessly engaged in activities that lead to divine union easily attains the state of blissful union with spirit now again krishna is helping us see both sides of it in our meditation as we work to free ourselves from imperfections this is what we are really doing in our meditations every imperfection imperfection here means what anything that is out of balance is an imperfection which because it exists in a state where sooner or later it's going to have to be balanced by the opposite 
which is why we're, we constantly talk about not living in extremes because an extreme is an imperfect state. Any extreme is going to have to be balanced by the opposite extreme because we live in a dual universe. So imperfection is finding first that fulfillment where both realities unite and become one singular experience of bliss. So as in meditation, we offer up these imperfections, every thought that comes, we're coming back. All our energy, we're lifting up to the brain, to the point between the eyebrows. Everything around us is achieving that state of perfect balance. Then ceaselessly engaged in activities that lead to divine union. So it's not just in our meditation, outwardly as well, we have to think about what are those activities that lead to divine union, which means that also bring about that state of unity, also bring all aspects of myself into one united experience. This is whether it's seva, whether it's japa, whether it's the awareness that we bring when we do any work, because all work is God, no matter what we're doing. Then easily, Krishna says, one attains the state of blissful union with spirit. So it has to go hand in hand. You cannot just be meditating and have these wonderful experiences and then go out and not have your actions be in tune also with union outwardly. United to the Supreme Self by the practice of yoga, he beholds his self, his self, yes, in all beings and all beings in that one self. Now, he beholds, a lot of people again is, in my meditation, I'll get so deep so that when I come out, I will just start naturally beholding everyone as a, a part of me and I a part of everything. And to a certain degree, that's true. But for most of our cases, perhaps it's not so true. Therefore, what it also means is that we're going to have to make again an effort to see that which means we cannot judge and criticize which means we cannot kind of get upset at people for who for being who they are we cannot have expectations of them i mean that's what it means that i am one and they i am in them and they are in me it's not just going to oh, i meditated and now i open my eyes and wow i just feel everyone's just me and i'm just everyone Yes, that, in, that ability to do that will keep increasing because once you experience unity inside you, there's a better chance of experiencing unity outside you as well. But at the same time, there's work to be done. For most of us, this is still going to be work. And it's also important that we do it, that we practice it. See in our spouses that I'm just working with me. And me doesn't mean the egoic me, the capital self here. That I'm dealing with Krishna here. I'm working with Krishna. In my parents, I'm serving Krishna. In my children, I'm teaching Krishna. In my neighbors, in that irritating, you know, colleague of mine, it's Krishna teaching me patience. And little by little, then your meditations become deeper because there aren't that many fluctuations during your meditation. And of course, the outer life becomes serene, contented and blissful. This was one of, this next one, the 30th verse was one of our Guru's favorite that he quoted very often. He who beholds me everywhere and who beholds everything in me never loses sight of me, nor I lose sight of him. 
And this is Krishna's promise to us. He's asking us, if you can behold me everywhere. This is what he meant initially. That this person's a part of me and I'm a part of them. Is that we're both part of Krishna in fact. There is no I or them here. There is only him. And when you can start beholding in every one Krishna. And you can start beholding everything as part of Krishna. Then... Krishna says that is when we will never lose sight of him and he won't lose sight of us. Isn't that an interesting thought? Because you wouldn't think of God as losing sight of you. However, when uh, as our guru would put it to Swami Kriyananda, he says, don't give in to moods. Whenever you are in a mood, I can't help you anymore. It's like we're no longer in vibrational resonance with where even Krishna could do something for us. It's like at that moment, it's like you just, even they have to put their hands up and say, I'm just going to have to wait for Shurjo to get out of this before I can actually participate in him, with him once again. And so here Krishna is trying to help us see that aspect that only when we behold him is he also able to behold us in the same way. And if Krishna beholds us as part of him, the job is done. If Krishna decides that he beholds himself in us, then we just become Krishna. Then that effort, all that hardship, all that relinquishing of self-willed longings, all of that just merges into that one experience. Last uh, class, I think Narayani was talking about Swami is um, asking uh, his guru Paramahansa Yogananda if every, well, oh, it was in the autobiography, you know, if every desire needs yeah, to be fulfilled, be fulfilled and, you know, and of course, uh, Yogananda said, yes, every desire has to be fulfilled no matter how tiny it is, which is you know, one thing we need to be aware of. If the more we create, the more we are compelled for them to, ha to be fulfilled. But then, you know, Swami Kriyananda was feeling a little kind of low at the fact that, wow, I don't know how many desires I might have kind of built up and I, I'm going to have to fulfill all of them. And so many of them are so useless. So many of them are completely in the opposite direction of where I want to be now. And so he just said, you know, well, in that case, Master, help me fulfill, you know, overcome this desire of mine. My attachment, my attachment to good food. <laughs> and so that was like for him at that moment, that was the thing that was bothering him. And then almost contradictory you can say to what Yogananda just said and he says you know don't worry about that when ecstasy comes everything goes and so while yes the energy that we've put out that's what desire is our energy our life force has gone out of us gotten entangled in maya in the world and so it's going to have to find resolution by coming back to us the law of karma but when ecstasy comes, and this is what Krishna is saying, when you behold me everywhere and in everything, then I'll behold you, then I'll see you and I'll never lose sight of you. Job's done. Then that ecstasy comes, everything goes. Because that energy is so much more powerful, it'll wash away the energy of those desires. It will in fact fulfill those desires in the absolute highest way, in one swoop. And that's what we're looking for. So don't get too worried about, oh, I can't, you know, how I have to live and everything has to be looked at and controlled. If in your meditations you can learn 
to at least control the mind to give up and relinquish the control to relinquish those self-willed uh, longings and motivations and intentions if you can just do that if you can prove to yourself and to krishna that for half an hour i'm able to do that they're willing to really take care of a lot paramans yogananda gave us as disciples this uh, formula <laughs> that's important for us to remember in which he said as a disciple our part our self effort constitutes 25% of the spiritual journey and he says the guru brings in 25% on behalf of the disciple and the rest of the 50% is god's grace so in essence 75% of the everything that constitutes our freedom it has nothing to do with us 75% these guys are going to bring to the table but of course there's the caveat the caveat is we have to first bring our 25% <laughs> we keep waiting you bring your 75% and so everything becomes wonderful then i'll bring my 25% because then it'll be easy to do but no we have to first bring our 25% so our 25% is this our half an hour of meditation deep meditation true meditation still meditation every time we hold don't let one of our reactions kind of take the best of us every time we let our uh, judgment and criticism of a person go every time we're able to even for few moments recognize god in somebody that's then then god and guru start to just take over the rest then krishna just says you know what don't worry i got everything else you just give me this much that yogi rests forever centered in me who whatever his outward way of living sees me at the heart of all beings again and again so this chapter is about dhyana yoga which is you know all about meditation but these last three stanzas krishna is really focusing on us needing to see krishna's presence god in every individual that's probably as separate from our meditation that's probably the next most important thing for us to do not so much control this and control that and make sure you don't have any desire can you see in every individual god's presence and why is our meditation so important to that process is because until and unless you don't experience god's presence inside you it becomes very hard then it's essentially then we have to fake it which at times works you know okay i just i think god's in this person i know god's in this person so i'm just going to kind of go with that it doesn't become an an actual conscious a state of consciousness it becomes an act which can be helpful at times but through our meditation the act becomes an experience becomes who we are you know aham brahmasmi i i experience brahman in me and so then when i open my eyes it's easy for me then to experience brahman in the person next to me and in the people around me however again both must be done simultaneously because both will help if you're able to see god in others there's a very good chance that through your meditation it'll help be able to experience god in you and so these are the two things right now that are worth focusing on our meditations and then 
on this outward level of trying to perceive Krishna as much as you can in everyone, in everything, wherever you go, whoever you are with. And you'll see automatically in that desires walk up, wash away, expectations start to fall off because Krishna is already perfect. So this person before me is already perfect. There's nothing I need to I need to change about them, to expect from them, to hope from them. There's nothing they need to give me that will fulfill me because just as perfect as they are in the form of Krishna, so too I am perfect in the form of Krishna. So maybe that's where we should stop today. I was thinking when you were talking on Krishna about surrendering. I love the technique, the meditation technique of Hongso, mm. because the main characteristic of the technique is that you can not control your breath. Mm. I mean, the, the essence of Hongso is simply watching your breath the ability to observe without getting personally involved making a little bit of distance and strengthening the ability to observe without judge without telling the breath where it needs to go and that takes a lot of willpower not to control your breath while we are meditating and practicing Hongso, certainly vibrationally is a, is a mantra that has a power and is changing our brain at a very, very subtle cellular level. It's working with our karma, with our ability to concentrate. But Hongso, when we bring it outwardly, practically in our daily lives really represents the principle of cooperation because really surrendering what it is what is it the ability to let go to not control to cooperate with your breath in meditation but to cooperate what life brings to you in our daily lives so i think a very good practice for us for this week would be how we can practice hong so in the middle of the activity which are two principles involved first the ability to cooperate with what's happening without resisting it, without judging it, without pushing it aside. But how can I find my center in the very fact that I'm cooperating with it? So first of all, cooperating with our dharma, with that phone call, with that problem that unexpectedly happened with something that didn't work in the way we wanted how can we cooperate with that and secondly how can we simply detach ourselves and observe that circumstance that situation as it's simply happening in front of us so we observe and then we cooperate and i think this would be a very helpful thing to practice because then 
we will be bringing that ability to observe, to watch, to let go and to surrender also in our meditations. So as much as you can, find ways to leave your Hong So technique in the middle of the battlefield. I mean, every day is a Hong and a So. And at night is that pause, that breathlessness state where, you know, the body is suspended in a sense. And the next day again, Hong, then we go to bed at night and then again, So. And if we mm, become creative, in our way to perceive our daily lives as the process simply of Hong So and to cooperate with it, I think we could, we could bring that concept and that deeper understanding in our actual meditations. So let's all do that. Let's see how Hong So can become an actual um, principle that we live by the principle of cooperation and the principle of not controlling and the ability to just you know to to let go when it's to let go to cooperate when it's uh, it's called up to us to cooperate and just to watch maybe to add the concentration and the concentration absolutely very good one while you are observing don't let your mind go, yeah, anywhere. go anywhere stay with that stay with whatever is happening i just wanted to finish mm. one more verse just because in fact the following one then comes back to arjuna asking a question and this last verse nothing much to add to it but it's good to just end with it which is oh arjuna the best yogi is he who feels the needs of others their sorrows their joys as though these were his own. So that's where Krishna is kind of ending that particular thought of being able to see God in everyone. Also to be able to feel them, not just to kind of see them uh, uh, in some sort of a intellectual way, but to really feel them in every way that you can.